welcome to Planet Poetry, the podcast about poets and poetry. I'm Peter Kenny. And I'm Robin Houghton. And today we have a bit of a weather theme going on. We'll be dipping our toe into how poets employ climate in their works. We're going to be talking with poet Claire Shaw and also with the editor of a new literary magazine with an environmental frame. So first of all, Peter, I think you've got a poem for us. Yes, I have a poem called Rain by Edward Thomas, one of my favourite poems of all time. It's a bit bleak, but then, hey, it's rain. 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 Midnight rain. Nothing but the wild rain on this bleak hut and solitude and me remembering again that I shall die and neither hear the rain nor give it thanks for washing me cleaner than I have been since I was born into this solitude. Blessed are the dead that the rain rains upon, but here I pray that none whom once I loved is dying tonight, or lying still awake, solitary, listening to the rain, either in pain or thus in sympathy, helpless among the living and the dead, like a cold water among broken reeds, Myriads of broken reeds, all still and stiff, like me, who have no love which this wild rain has not dissolved, except the love of death. If love it be for what is perfect and cannot, the tempest tells me, disappoint. So I believe he wrote that while sitting in a hut, waiting to be sent off to the First World War, where um, he... Uh, sadly met his end um yeah, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful prescient. poem i think it is beautiful but it's as you say it's heartbreaking really i mean one says that in retrospect because we know what happened to him and it's got that pathetic fallacy going going on that you know he's feeling utterly miserable and it's pouring with rain but uh so maybe it's a bit on the nose but i love it nonetheless uh, i do like edward thomas's work he's a yes a sort of People talk about him as being a minor poet, but a one that's well worth checking out if you don't know his work already. And I think he's had a bit of a, a revival in recent years. But let's not forget, of course, that rain is associated with life-giving properties. So on that note, I'd like to share a poem by Alice Oswald. And it's from her 2016 collection, Falling Awake, which I think won several awards. Did it actually win the Elliot? I don't know. It was up for no, the Elliot. No, it didn't. It didn't win year. the Elliot. No. It won the Costa... Costa Poetry Award. Costa Poetry 2016. Award. 2016. And this is the first poem in the collection. It's called A Short Story of Falling. It is the story of the falling rain to turn into a leaf and fall again. It is the secret of a summer shower to steal the light and hide it in a flower. And every flower, a tiny tributary that from the ground flows green and momentary, is one of water's wishes. And this tale hangs in a seed head smaller than my thumbnail. If only I, a passerby, could pass as clear as water through a plume of grass to find the sunlight hidden at the tip, turning to seed, a kind of lifting rain drip. Then I might know 
like water, how to balance the weight of hope against the light of patience. Water, which is so raw, so earthy strong, and lurks in cast iron tanks, and leaks along, down under gravity, towards my tongue, to cool and fill the pipework of this song, which is the story of the falling rain, that rises to the light and falls again. That's a, a, a lovely um, antidote to the Edward Thomas, I think. Well, a counterpoint. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it just, that poem is just the music of it, the circular. You want to read it again and again, I find. Who said End Rhine was dead? Ridiculous, isn't it? It's just, I don't know, beautiful poem. It makes me um, think of Blake, especially like the first four lines. I've got it in front of me as well by, by chance. It is the story of the falling rain to turn into a leaf and fall again. It is the secret of a summer shower to steal the light and hide it in a flower. And that just screams Blake at me <laughs> in the best possible way. Yes, yes. Yes, to steal the light and hide it in a flower. It's just it's just so lovely. <laughs> just like one of those, oh, I wish I'd written that moment as soon as, you, as, soon as I read that. There you go. It's got... Um, it's got no punctuation in it either, so so it makes it kind of there's no true. end and no beginning in a way. So yeah, just uh, on and on. It's a yeah. great poet. It's a great book, actually. I agree. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Alice Oswald falling awake. So today uh, we've got an interview uh, done by Robin talking with Claire Shaw about her excellent book Flood. Let's hear that. Delighted to be talking with Claire Shaw. Claire is someone who I first met a couple of years ago at the Swindon Festival of Poetry when she was the poet in residence. Something I need to say about Claire is that once you've met her, you never forget her because she has this charisma. It's the only word I can think of. Claire's had three collections with Blood Axe, the most recent being Flood, and that is the book we're going to be talking about mostly today because of our weather theme. On the back cover of the book, it says, the territory of Claire Shaw's third collection isn't one she chose herself, but one which chose her, the flooded valley and the ruined home. So a big welcome to Claire. And Claire, maybe you'd like to start by reading a poem from the book. I will. I'll start with a poem called, And Still I Don't Know. I still don't know what it was that woke us, suddenly, both as one. It wasn't the chimes. It wasn't the neighbours. It wasn't the lights switched on. Maybe the room was too cold. I was shaking. And I think I could see you breathing silver though it was late summer and we hadn't worn coats all week. The lamps went out one by one and now the road was a river of darkness and there was a thrill like disaster impending, something bigger than joy or pain. And both like that, in our T-shirts and shorts, the cotton still warm from sleep, we walked down the path to the beach where the sea was sighing and pounding and crashing and the boats were rocking 
Your eyes were creatures, your fingers were darkness, and the sea was all of our past and future, and way, way out there were lights on the water. We hadn't touched all night, but your hand was in mine, and your hair smelled clean, and your skin, your skin was a dream. Thanks, Claire. I think what I really love about starting with that here is because it's there's something bad coming, there's some sort of anxiety, and yet we've got this this tender relationship. The the references to the sea and the pounding and the crashing and the the dream. I imagine that maybe, but the worst thing sometimes we get a premonition in dreams anyway. So for me, you know, it's a it's a great scene setter. It's so interesting hearing people's reactions to your poetry. You must know this and you learn all sorts about what you actually did. That literally was the story of a relationship that didn't happen. And it was really clear to me when it it came to ordering the collection that it began at the beginning. The story that's told throughout the collection is the story of a literal flood. It's the floods that happened in Hebden Bridge in 2013 in particular, and then more latterly the floods at the end of 2015. But it absolutely is also the story of a relationship from its beginning to its end. And it's the story of various kind of catastrophic events, events that leave behind a trail of damage and devastation. But it's also the story of how we kind of survive and come back from those sorts of experiences. So I'm incredibly glad that that's the way that that strange little poem operates. I think that's right what you said about hearing someone else's interpretation. It is really weird, isn't it? Things come out that may maybe weren't intended. Yeah, the whole point of working with poetry is that we're working with, with what we don't know. So whatever our intention as writers, we very deliberately have to let go of, of an element of certainly narrative control. We, we can only write 10% of, of what the reader's going to understand I imagine the rest of it is up to them. I like that idea. Only 10% of what the reader's going to understand. Yeah, it's scientific, isn't it? I've measured it. (laughs) I think it is something that aspiring poets or, you know, those of us who are sort of still kind of a bit further down the line need to really bear in mind. Quite often you go to workshops and somebody will come up with a poem and say, this is what I meant it to mean. Or you can tell that they have this one big intention and, and you don't get a chance as a reader to really put your own... Absolutely. Or that point, particularly again with with new writers, you point out a bit that doesn't really work and they're like, but that's what happened. I don't give a damn that that's the truth because it's not working for the poem and the poem is the thing, not the bloody truth. Um, Also, you mentioned about the ordering, I think, just briefly there, or, you know, when you're ordering a collection. And it did feel like I was being inundated literally by these waves because it felt like the tension was building in certain poems to the point where we'd suddenly get to this kind of explosion of fury and grief and then we'd kind of be let down a little bit something a bit quieter something more sort of meditative and so there's this brilliant wave effect was that am I imagining that or was that something that you did intend or sort of had half an eye on 
I'm so glad you got that. That would that's like manna to my ears to mix my metaphors. That's exactly what I was after. In fact, the the kind of combination of artist and nerd in me was really drawn to scales of impact. Forgive me while I digress completely. So I really love you know the Beaufort scale of wind. Yeah. yeah. And the way that it measures wind not by its like miles per hour. It measures it by the impact that it has on things that we'd all recognize. Does it blow an umbrella inside out? Does it make a weather vane spin? And they're beautifully kind of archaic, these images. And I got really interested because my previous work up to this point has been all around mental health. So I spent quite a lot of years working in mental health. Um, I used mental health services for a long time. So I got really interested in the idea of, of, of flood as a, as a metaphor for trauma, but also the idea of measuring the impact in the same way that we might measure the impact of trauma. So the idea of the book is a kind of ramping up of measures of impact until we get to the catastrophic damage. And then it's about it's about recovery hmm. and resilience as well. I think you've done it really well. It might be a good point to read us another poem, maybe Instructions for Coping in Terrible Times. Let's have that one. It's so nice being told what to read because it makes me go for different ones. <laughs> Instructions for coping in terrible times. Learn to swim. If you have time, secure your home before the expected rain. Pay attention. Floods can happen in minutes. Turn off utilities at the main switches. Avoid any movement that causes pain. When a warning is issued, leave. Control the bleeding. If you are taking cover in a church hall, padlock your bags against theft. Always listen to the instructions authorities give you. Do not be alone. Identify where you can go. A friend in another town, a motel, for example. Keep your gas tank full. Cover the burn with clean, dry dressings. Don't drive through moving currents on the way. If your car stalls in rising waters, abandon it immediately. Accept small favours. Seize every opportunity to stay dry. Take what is brought by the river in your stride. Eat meat if you have to. Do not fall. The weather will change and all damage is relative. If you notice an unfamiliar smell, have it inspected. Write it all down. Be prepared to quit at a moment's notice. Accept what you were entitled to. Do not drown. Hmm. Love the way you finish on do not drown. <laughs> Quite a lot of these poems, although it's, it's about trauma, as you say, and it's about terrible things that happened, there, somehow there's, there's these moments of dark humour that I think well for me anyway pulls me in I'm thinking yeah okay I can imagine this sort of instructions listed and you follow them all one by one so would would you agree there's there's humour in the collection or am I just is it just literally your personality Robin I'm I'm devastated 
No, absolutely. Of course, of course, there's humour. But yeah, every place that I've been to, and I do generally write about autobiographical material, there's never been a place where people weren't using humour as a way of as a way of getting through. So in my first collection, Straight Ahead, I wrote very directly about some of my times in psychiatric hospital. I spent long, long periods of time uh, as a patient in psychiatric hospital in my 20s. You know, people were in the, the worst days that they might ever go through in their lives. But of course we laughed. You know, how else would we get through those times? And and I think the same is is true with literature. Pure dark, pure light it is very difficult to to hook into and engage with and, and absorb. And, and I guess in, in some ways it's probably just my personality as well. There is this section of the book where you bring in, well, Jimmy Savile, let's say the name. Not You don't bring his name in, but I started reading this little sequence of poems, mm-hmm. which is kind of Hansel and Gretel tied up with Jimmy Savile and witnesses to that. And it so insinuates itself almost in the way that I can imagine he would have insinuated himself into the lives of these children. I just started reading these poems and I thought, hang on a minute. And I had to go back several poems and read again. I thought, oh, my God. And I just thought that was done so skillfully. And what a topic to bring in. What brought you to that? I'm interested in that. Well, it. I mean, you're you're quite right that it's all done through the the sort of trope, if you like, of, of, of Hansel and Gretel, which I think is... It's such a disturbing story. Um, and the particular point of reference for me is the leaving the children in the forest. It's the father that leaves the children in the bloody forest. Mm. How could you do that? And that, I guess, is the point of connection with my own story. Um, so I was raised in a very large family. Um, there was very little safeguarding or, or safekeeping. And as a result of that, we were you know, subject to all sorts of horrible traumatic uh, experiences. And that's part of the reason I've gone on to always engage with stories around things like trauma and neglect, abuse, and the kind of long-term mental health impact that 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 can have on people. So yeah, very, very personal point of connection with the idea that it's the 60s and 70s, that's what blokes did. We all watched that happening and Mm. we didn't take action, kind of rang a bell with the idea of the the woodcutter leaving his own children in a forest to, to let terrible, terrible things happen to them. You know, I think often when we're focused on trauma, we can focus on, you know, the, the single terrible event, the, the horrible violence. It's the, those kind of more nuanced mechanisms that go on around trauma, the not believing or the validating or the shame. They're the really destructive things. And that's why I'm absolutely, the second book begins with a poem about I don't believe in silence. I do not believe in silence. Because I think the very act of of speaking out and listening and witnessing, it's healing for the person that can speak from trauma. But if we as a community can kind of witness it and engage with it, that is in itself transformation. The absolute opposite to what happened with with Jimmy Savile. And that's where I think that, you know, poetry can be political activism. But that's why poets are in prison in, in other countries. Because speaking out isn't just something that that leads to, to political action. It is political action. 
I noticed that, you know, you're drawn very much to very effective use of repetition of phrases of particular words. And this comes through in quite a few of the poems. It's almost, I felt it's almost like an incantation, like you're weaving a spell. And it reminds me of a lot of performance poetry. Do you see those poems as performances when you're writing them? Or is there some difference in your mind between a page poem and and a performance poem? I write for the page. That's what I've always written for. But I love reading out. It's my voice. I, I made it. So I delight in, in being able to read out. And when I read other people's work, I love to read it out as well. So for me, I feel like I, I probably belong very passionately to, to the mid-ground between the page and the performance. I love to write for the page. I love to use every element of the page, the white space, the punctuation, the layout, the line breaks, the stanza breaks. But I, I love to read the work out as well. So what poem are you going to read for us? This will be the last poem. I like Open Door Policy that has a real feel of um, redemption. We'll talk about it after you've read it anyway. Open Door Policy. Maybe one day you'll walk through a door inside you. It isn't your home, but you'll be welcomed and asked to stay. There are people in there. Like a gift, they'll receive you. And no one will fear for your health or your teeth, the state of you. How you were a cliff about to fall and everyone near is in danger. All that you need is a sofa and maybe the telly on low. There will be no questions, only the lines of sun on the curtains. If you want it, a bed for the night. They heard you before you arrived. And though you've carried your storm to their door, here is calm. You are not high waves or a ship going down. You won't sink with your people inside you. No one will drown. You don't need to be saved or mended. Just somebody's hand on your back, a coffee with milk, some cake. You are not the moon dragging cold tides behind you. You are not even fire or star. Someone can warm you. Someone can touch you. One day, you'll walk through that door. You'll rest on that sofa. You'll stay there forever. Oh, I I feel myself welling up when you're reading that. There's something really tender and sad, but but beautiful and comforting about that. I just think it's such a lovely kind of redemptive poem, really moving. So thank you for reading that one. Oh, thank you for asking. It's one of the quieter poems, so it doesn't get more, it doesn't get as many outings. Yeah, and I think that people may read the collection and come away thinking of the really dramatic imagery of of the flooding and the trauma but in fact, these are really beautiful, these quiet poems that come in as well. Yeah. So, Claire, what are you up to now? What's what's coming on the horizon? So, at the moment, the collection that I'm finishing is called Towards a General Theory of Love. It's actually the collection that won the Northern Writers' Awards a couple of years back, oh. right, right at the beginning, when it was about a third written. We've got the publication date, 2022, because that's the way that blood acts works that year should also be an interesting year for me because i'm working with a composer at the royal academy of music it's their bicentenary and we're writing an opera 
So I'm now a librettist. And there's a real continuity with the book that we've been talking about, actually, because the opera is all about hidden rivers. Uh, so that's been fascinating to to research. I love researching for poetry. And I've been writing about the hidden rivers of, of London. Uh-huh, yeah. And who knew? Writing about flood. <laughs> and the idea of the, the love collection was I've spent so much time thinking about things like trauma or flooding or, you know, resilience and survival, yes, but also the things that we have to survive and be resilient about. And I just thought, I just want to write a collection that's about love, inevitably, because I'm writing it. (laughs) That stuff's coming anyway. (laughs) There we go, Rob. That's brilliant. Thank you. So that was a really great interview with Claire Shaw. I like this idea about a relationship that didn't happen and that sort of idea of flooding, that welling up of emotion. Yes. Almost came from nowhere. Um, It's a lovely metaphor for the whole thing, I think. Absolutely. And when she reads her work, you can really kind of feel, as you say, this sort of welling up. Uh, It's it's in her. She's um, alive with her words. Yeah, and there's something about her language as well that I like. It's not what I describe as sort of baroque or flamboyant. There's a kind of almost, a, in the best possible way, a plainness about it that allows the metaphors to really shine through. Because there is a, a sort of a continuum, isn't there, when you're reading a poem? And if sometimes you're just constantly distracted by the vocabulary, you forget, you know, actually what the shape of the poem is or what you're supposed to be thinking about. And, you know, you never get that with her work. I think having read the book after you you kindly sent it to me, I think, wow, yeah, yeah. really yeah, like I, her work. I agree. It's uh, it's plain language in the sense that there's no, there's nothing extraneous there and there's nothing embellished. Mm. It's uh, powerful stuff. I'm, I, I love what she was saying about speaking out is a political action as well. Yes, absolutely. I thought what she said about that was was right on the button, really. It's empowering as well, this idea that what we say might have an impact. Something else I thought was interesting was what Claire said about reading her work is a performance, that she writes for the page, but she also loves reading her work aloud. I'm always sort of thinking about what is this performance poetry thing? What is what is performance versus page poetry? And mm. people are undoubtedly swept along by, by performance poetry, the hearing it read it's often very personal work and can you separate the work from the person when they're performing but uh but I think Claire sort of seems to bridge that gap somehow it's thrilling to see her and hear her read out aloud oh. I, but it's I also mean, I, fantastic on the page I mean I think with performance poetry if there's a thread of the meaning that's quite easy to get the first time round then that makes a good poem that is is good to perform but that doesn't necessarily preclude there being other layers of meaning underneath it which can reward you when you read it Mm. i mean the sort of worst kind of performance poetry i think is that you hear it once and it's just like hearing a joke that won't make you laugh the second time because there's nothing else to it but this is really good poetry that can also be performed really well i think i've got a feeling that this performance poetry discussion is going to run and run and we'll be talking about it in another episode, I think. Okay, that's a good idea. Well, another good idea might be to continue our weather theme. Now, Peter has been talking to Elizabeth Murta 
about an ecologically minded literary magazine that's just started in Ireland. Now based in Dublin, Elizabeth Murta is a recent graduate of the MPhil in creative writing at Trinity College. In 2018, she was selected to participate in the Poetry Island Introduction Series. Her poetry has appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies. With Cassia Gaydon Gilmartin, she launched Channel Magazine in April 2019, which Elizabeth has described as a literary journal with an environmental frame. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. So I love the statement from uh, Channel Magazine's website where you say, we believe that humanity's disengagement from the natural world is one of the great losses of our time. Could you say a little bit more about that? I think for for both myself and Cassia, when we um, were inspired to put the journal together, one of the things that we um, agreed upon was that this sense of disconnect that people have from one another, from our selves, our higher selves, if you want, it, it has to do fundamentally with um, a, a disconnect from the natural world, um, a notion that we are separate from the natural world, that we are separate from animals. Um, and as soon as you start creating those hierarchies and separations between self and other, be it self and nasturtium or you know, self and your neighbor. Um, that's where a lot of, in my opinion, in our opinion, um, social and political issues stem from. Trying to create the means for people to um, reconnect to the natural world and enjoy that connection and find love within natural spaces is maybe one of the solutions um, to that, or not a solution maybe, but um, a way back to something. I grew up in the Channel Islands and moved to London when I was a young boy. And um, it just astonished me that, you know, people would think the world was the city. My best friend that I made in London didn't appreciate going into the country. He saw no point. Part, part of the reason for forming Channel as well was to give people an introduction to getting to know and enjoy those spaces. Because... It's just like when you go to somebody's house for the first time, you're a little uncomfortable and you're feeling like, oh, I don't know if I really belong here and where's the toilet and where's everything, you know, like when if you don't have any experience going into natural spaces, it can be very uncomfortable. It can feel like, uh, what am I doing here? What do I pay attention to? I'm bored or um, it's hot or there's bugs, you know, that type of discomfort is is understandable, um, but it just takes time like to get to know where you are. Have you noticed anything about the work you've been sent? You know, can you draw any conclusions about how people are feeling about the environment and how they understand themselves in terms of the environment? Yeah, um, it's really wonderful to get. I mean, it's such a privilege anyway to just get to read like a cross section of contemporary writing um, and then for it to have the framework of nature writing, broadly speaking, just to see how people are reflecting upon the natural world. Most people are utterly in love with it, <laughs> really. Um, a lot of yeah. the poetry that we get, I would classify as some form of love poetry, like uh, even if it's for, you know, a kestrel. But people are, are seemingly in awe um, is the largest theme. And then, you know, you get a, a massive amount of concern as well, frustration, fear, 
it really runs the whole range of anything else that people write about. People are writing just as passionately with those themes about nature as well. So that's been great to see. We're living in an age of identity politics at the moment, Mm -hmm. where people are examining, you know, shared experiences of injustice and exploring various aspects of their own identity. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I wonder uh, how this connects with, you know, concerns about the environment. Do you see them as talking to each other at all, or or is it a completely different debate? I think that all of these issues that are in the public conversation, uh, they're all deeply connected, fundamentally connected. Um, Environmentalism and um, race politics, gender politics, it all comes from, again, I would argue that disconnect um, that people have once you separate yourself from being a part of this larger ecosystem that relies on each part functioning to its fullest and to its healthiest in order to just at a baseline support life. Like we have to allow all of these different areas to flourish. We can't have one um, dampened or oppressed. We can't be burning clear-cutting forests um, and we can't be hurting black people. Uh, we can't be hurting women. Like it, So the impulse to um, control and to destroy the environment is the same as the impulses behind um, a lot of the issues around identity politics. So we've got a deeper thing to get to here. Um, That'll solve all of them, ideally. (laughs) This is an obsession of mine now, but I'm thinking about W.B. Yeats, who was a big hero to me, especially when I first started reading poetry, Mm -hmm. and the um, Irish literary renaissance, which certainly in its early phase wove legend and Irish landscape to provide a fresh way for Ireland's writers to think about themselves and their own identities. I wonder if, because you, you're from the States originally, aren't you? Yeah. I, I wonder if you find that Ireland has a, an especially rich soil for launching a magazine like yours. I suppose I, I lack a certain um, frame of comparison because I've never tried to do this anywhere but here. Um, I wasn't mm. that involved in the literary scene in California before I left. Um, I kind of like came into that uh, once I moved here. But I would still say this country, especially with the independent publishing scene, is so rich for um, for people helping each other, supporting each other. Uh, when we decided to launch the magazine, um, we reached out to a couple of other prominent magazines, um, Banshee being one of them. Uh, and they just gave us basically a step-by-step how-to guide, how to launch this. And we received... Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah t- they, they were super supportive. And then writers all across the place um, were really supportive of the project, uh, it being specifically an environmentalist theme. And I suppose... The Irish mythology and Irish writing generally tends to have um, a, a particular attention towards land um, and towards place as well. So maybe it was particularly well set up within Ireland um, to do this type of project. So yes, is my long answer. <laughs> <laughs> I love Ireland. I've been there about seven or eight times, but uh, the You can smell the literature in the air, can't you, when you get there? I find it such an inspiring place. 
you're a channel magazine at the moment. Um, it, it's currently print only, isn't it? But you've got a blog on your website that features poems that you published previously. You're taking essays, stories, and poems. Are, are you open to people from across the planet sending you work, not wishing you to be utterly deluged? But um, uh, have you got sort of international ambitions or are you firmly rooted in Ireland? Um, yes, we have um, been open to international submissions since we launched. Um, and we actually receive a great number of international submissions. We get a lot of submissions from the UK and from the US. Um, but we also receive submissions from all over Europe, um, from the Philippines, from Nigeria, from India and Pakistan. So unfortunately, we only read poems in English, um, although we're also open to publishing poems in translation. That's just because uh, we can really only judge work that is in English because we only speak English. <laughs> um, but we are mm. welcoming of submissions all over the place. It's really, you know, it's it's a global problem. Um, the the way that we are currently living in nature, and so it's going to take a whole global paradigm shift to do something new um, with that. So it is a global project. Yeah, <laughs> I, I find there's a, especially in um, English poetry. I'm talking about now a, a kind of defeatism. I, I I think it's sort of condensed in that that poem that um, Auden wrote about Yeats and in which he says that, you know, poetry makes nothing happen, mm. um, which always seems to be a bit absurd. You know, he was writing about Yeats who, you know, won a Nobel Prize and uh, mm. uh, was a member of the Senate and made all kinds of things happen. What sort of influence do you want to exert with this magazine? And, and do you think you can contribute to making something happen? And if so, how? I suppose it started as a thing to do to, to contribute to some type of greater good um, was the idea. Just these are certain skills that both of us had. We shared a concern for the natural world and thought, well, we can make something. Creativity makes things happen. And when mm. you put creative work out there, um, especially something like a magazine, you're just really creating a platform for other people to, to keep creating and the idea being the more that we are creating, the more we are in that practice and that framework of thinking about the natural world, writing about it, um, being a part of it, the more likely we are to do the necessary things to protect it and thereby protect each other and ourselves um, since we're all part of it. I think there's something quite straightforward about people being able to recognize that other people feel the way they do as well. Your magazine literally channels that, doesn't it? It channels that togetherness. Elizabeth, thank you so much for talking to us on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having uh, me. I can only wish you well with Channel Magazine. I advise people to surf by and uh, maybe pick up a hard copy or send off for one. So I was I was fascinated what Elizabeth had to say about she felt that all social and political issues stem from the fact that there's this separation between ourselves and everything else humans versus the natural world as if we weren't actually part of that world um and more generally between you know self and and other and I just thought that was just such a really intelligent and interesting root in yeah it's good to have such a a thoughtful kind of stance 
I mean, I think it really helps to give yourself a brief like that, really. Yes, and and it was interesting that she said that it was uh, that other magazines in Ireland were very supportive of it and and helped them get going. Just gives me this sort of warm feeling about the state of poetry. Well, in yeah, Ireland. I think it's great. I mean, and also because there's so there's so little money or anything in poetry, why not you know help each other out and uh, be more collaborative? I think. No, it helps everyone, doesn't it? It builds connections. She sounds like uh, someone who's got a huge number of ideas and uh, is, is going about it in a, in a marvellous way. I haven't actually seen the magazine, but certainly from the website, it looks very professional. And, and I'm not surprised they've been inundated with submissions because... All around uh, the globe. Yeah, no, really it looks cool. great. They've just released the second issue, I think. So it's a flying start already. And it's interesting, they're only doing print only at the moment too. Yes, there is something yes. about having a slim volume in your hands. I think sitting in the cafe. I agree. Somewhere. I agree. And it, there's just something lovely about the um, the artifact of a poetry mm. magazine. You know, some some more than others, obviously. But I just had through the post, for example, the new fourteen, which is a a magazine that existed, but then it sort of closed, and it's been taken on by Richard Skinner. And he, I think, he's only planning to do one issue mm. a year. But uh, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's it's a square format, um, the, the amount of space around each poem. And when you've got poems of 14 lines, you know you know pretty much how much space they're going to take on the page. So the square format is... Are they sonnets? They're not all sonnets, but they're certainly all 14 <laughs> lines. <Yeah. laughs> Therein lies another discussion, that's a, isn't that's it? That's a thorny one. issue, isn't it? <laughs> right there. <laughs> a thorny issue. I'll get out my Don Patterson sonnets in a minute. <laughs> 